Welcome to Primer, a podcast that gets you closer to the heart of the matter. As you may know, the Primer is a small cap at the base of ammunition that when struck by a firing pin goes BAM. It ignites the gunpowder and sends the bullet downrange. The point of the podcast is like that, to get you going in the right direction quickly by briefly tackling a variety of subjects like books, people, events, issues, whatever. After listening, if you want to take it further, you can. Episodes and more information can be found at personalprimer.com. I am really excited to have Dr. Jerry Wegemer with me here on Primer. Um, I've known uh, Jerry for over three decades, yet we haven't spoken in years. And I know him to be a man of many things, but one is a lover of St. Thomas More, who is a personal hero of mine. And what I really intend to do this morning is just have a conversation with you, Jerry, about this remarkable man and why he is not known and he should be known and who he was and what he did. And, and I know a little bit about him, but you know a lot about him. So I would, I would love to hear some of your, you know, why you just, you know, for, well, first and foremost, why did you choose to dedicate your career to this man? Well, I didn't intend to, uh, but I was intrigued by him as a college student because I went to college during the crazy late 60s, early 70s, when everything was being questioned and everything was being challenged. And my best professor gave one class on Thomas More, and he said that in his opinion, he was the person who had excelled both in the practical and in the theoretical and in the spiritual realms, and that he had done more to bring together faith and reason than anyone else he knew. Well, that got my attention. Uh, and then I went on to do a PhD and had to do a dissertation. So I did it on Moore's most famous work, Utopia. And then I thought I was done pretty much with Thomas Moore. And I'd also seen Man for All Seasons when it came out in 1966. Mm. And I, of course, admired the man. But my first reaction was great saint, but no statesman, silence at the end. Uh, in front of a tyrannical king that was challenging the laws in the parliament. It seemed almost cowardly to a young person uh, and at least ill-advised. And then when I so, had to get tenure, I So that, that, seemed, yeah, that seems interesting. So your, your reaction was that his, his last act was he should have said something. Yes. Uh, and in fact, I found later that he wasn't silent at all, and that his effective communication, which used silence, is what took, uh, what made Henry VIII and Cromwell take the risk of putting the most popular citizen of, of England in prison, because they had to silence him effectively. Got it. So you, so you, you can, you, so you started your career, and you, so what happened then? Well, I had to write a book, and so I was going to write a book on Thomas More's poetry because no one had done that, and I found out that he wasn't silent at the end of his life, and that his early poetry and his writings showed a remarkable understanding of statesmanship. That after law school, he went back to learn Greek. So he could re write, uh, read the uh, Homer and Plato, and uh, and 
Aristotle and on all the roots of our tradition and that he actually then created works of art to help people advance politically and economically. Uh, I was amazed and I ended up writing a book called Thomas More on Statesmanship. And then when I finished that, I was going to go on to my uh, other first love, which was Shakespeare. Uh, but just before I began that second project, there was a worldwide movement to make Moore the patron of statesmen, 40,000 leaders from 90 countries. And since I had the only book on statesmanship, they asked me if I'd be part of the project. And I said, well, yeah. Uh, and I thought it was a remarkable educational opportunity because how to lead effectively is a very difficult, complex series of skills that take years and years to develop. When was this that, they, that this movement happened? 1999. Why, why did so many people rally around this saint that many of the people that I talked to have never heard of? Well, but in my generation and in the, the leaders of 1999, they would have seen a man for all seasons. And Moore was, at that point, uh, an icon of conscience and courage and principle. So for almost 20 years after 1966, 30, uh, Man for All Seasons, the play, was on the British reading list for high school students. Uh, if you took the national exams, you need to read that book. And um, movie was translated into at least 15 languages within two years. It won the Academy Award in 1966. That's right. yeah. It actually won six different Academy Awards. It was so well done. Screenplay, uh, Best Actor, uh, Best Director. I'm rewatching it now and it's, it's interesting when I was doing just some preparation for our call this morning, one of the things just in our time right now is I had read somewhere that he we're talking about a person who died 485 years ago. So this is a long time ago, right? He, that in 1523, he wrote a petition for freedom of speech. And apparently I was like one of the first, if not the first formal petitions for, for freedom of speech. So it's really seems like a lot of relevance to, to what we're going through today. Well, and, and that was the first written defense of free speech ever given. And he had a philosophic understanding to back it up. And, uh, but this is also part of his statesmanship. Part of his statesmanship too is that you need an educated citizenry. And so he gave his daughters the same Oxford level education he gave his son. This was revolutionary. But he defended it on the basis of philosophy and, and human nature. Uh, and th this, is, this isn't the good interest of all. So, so silly question, but they, the, the title of the movie is A Man for All Seasons, based on the play. What, what, is that, what does that really say? He's a man for all seasons. Like, that, that's just, it's a nice turn of phrase, but what does that mean? He's a man for all seasons. This was an ancient saying, that rare person that you would want with you in good times and bad, uh, to help you in the council room, but then help you at the bar, uh, to, to relax. I mean, someone who in every season could act appropriately. And that's where it's instructive that Moore is the first person to use the word integrity in the English language, that he was a person of integrity. Uh, 
in every realm of his life. So, so it, it's so you, a couple of things on that. So, in doing again, doing research and some of the things you'd sent me, and, and some of the things I had read, and on your on your sites and your resources, I had read that 410 first uses of words in the English language are attributed to him. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm reading this list, and that, that could be another interview altogether, because I, 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 my, 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 my studies were English literature in undergraduate, was 410 words that were attributed to him. And this is no random list of words that you would never use. Um, so, so, so that's one thing. And the, the second thing is, is you talk about he's a man for all season in all these different circumstances, he's a person of integrity. I would sense that you know him really well. Like you, like you, if you would, if you were describing, like you've, you had a beer with him, you've talked with him, you've philosophized with him. What was he like as a person? Most enjoyable. Uh, Erasmus was probably Erasmus considered more his best friend, and Erasmus described him as someone born for friendship, a person who was so sensitive to other people's personalities that he could get along with anyone at any level of society. But Moore trained himself as an expert in communication to do that. Because very bright geniuses, <laughs> uh, they can be hard to live with. <laughs> and they're not as attentive to the other person's needs. But Moore was. Moore also had a remarkable sense of humor. Uh, this is probably what the British under remember him the most. There is a play that never made it onto the stage during Shakespeare's lifetime because it would censored, and it's called Sir Thomas More. And Shakespeare is one of five playwrights who write this play and try to get it performed. And it's a series of Moore's most famous um, jokes and uh, situations in which he uses his wit to bring about justice in the most difficult situations and the most difficult people. That's what the British playwrights a generation later admired about Moore and, and learned from Moore. Now, I think one reason Moore is so important is that he was willing to be unknown in order to do the right thing. So uh, he was the most famous British writer of his lifetime. And yet, no, and yet the British will not say he is what he is, the first major figure of the Renaissance. He's also the, one of the most important influences on Shakespeare. Shakespeare crafts his first four plays on Moore's own writing, The History of Richard III. And Shakespeare has had a profound influence on the English-speaking world and on the entire world. Literary world. So, so why, so why is this remarkable man in so many ways, who's a treasure for humanity, certainly the English language for politics, for life, for literature, for all of these things? The list goes on and on. Why is he not like? Is 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 there an intent for to make him not known, or like where where would that come from to have? him sort of just disappear from history, being such a contributor to history? He would, the writers up to now of history would say he was on the losing side. 
Henry VIII and Cromwell were on the winning side. Now, that's where time is the great test. And right now, it's no longer clear that Cromwell and Henry VIII were actually on the winning side. What actually was good for the British people, what was good for the development of history. History now says Henry VIII was a tyrant who left England bankrupt uh, and who introduced and uh, policies of imperialism, which they've been suffering from since. I mean, he cut, I mean, in essence, what, what Henry VIII does is he cuts England off from the Catholic Church and he was called, if I, my, my memory of history is correct, the, defend, the defender of the faith by the, Holy, by, the, by the Pope, called Henry VIII the defender of the faith, I, I, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. But he cuts England from the Catholic Church. He starts his own church, and then he demands that, um, that, that, Saint Thomas, that Thomas More swear the oath of supremacy, and he doesn't because of conscience. I mean, that's the end of the story, right? So he dies. He gets beheaded because of his conscience. And he takes a stand where everybody else, even his daughter, right? So his daughter says to him, just tell, just say it doesn't matter. Like we, we start to, we hear this today. Like just say it, even though you don't believe it. You know, this fear, like I did a podcast recently about the fear to communicate. And I was afraid to publish it because of reprisal. We live in a world now where it's becoming more and more by the day, even there's a deep, deep seated fear to speak out. So you know, this quote that I had heard from, this quote from Chesterton in 1929 says, you know, Thomas More is more important at this moment, this is 1921, than at any moment since his death, which is in 1535, even perhaps the great moment of his dying, but he is not quite so important as he will be in about a hundred years time. It's 2020 that was written in 1929. Why, why is this person becoming relevant now? History takes time to decide what is true. Moore had a, a saying that time trieth truth. This is true in terms of a person's life. Uh, you, you understand a person over time. The person proves themselves over time. The same is true of ideas and uh, policies and movements. Uh, history is now reconsidering the period Moore wanted a united Europe, a united Christendom. He didn't want Christians fighting Christians. Uh, he wanted the international harmony that had characterized the late Middle Ages. Uh, and he also wanted Parliament to have its role in England as a self-governing nation. Henry VIII put back Parliament decades. In fact, it would be in another 80 years where there would be a civil war that would take away the tyrannical power of a king and invest it completely in parliament. So Moore, Moore was a historian. He understood the importance of introducing change in a, an appropriate way, but, but also giving things time. So his, his speech on uh, free speech was part of a vision of a self-governing people that you need so to be able so, to so, he, so, so what was his connection then with 
the United States and our form of government and like how what's that what's that was he an indirect influence a direct influence like where does he fit in that picture of well let's say Thomas More has always been popular in the United States and the complete works of Thomas More were printed in the United States started in 1960 and finished in 1997 uh, they are the uh, 15 volumes here 23 of them uh, and of course that was finished in 1997. We had the complete works of every other Renaissance author in the 19th century <laughs> done in England. It's part of the curriculum. Uh, so uh, we're just beginning to have the tools to know Thomas More. So he's late and as, as a Renaissance writer or as a Renaissance person, he's late to the game then. And, and in a certain sense, he's been sort of hidden off the off the hit list in England, but brought in here and then, you know, years, decades, centuries later, we're now just beginning to, to see him as a person that we need to, to know. Well, when Erasmus speaks about Moore, he says he's a person who loves equality and hates tyranny. He loves liberty and he honors law. Law that respects the right of every citizen. Moore in his literary works never uses the word subject. He uses citizen and people. He understands, for instance, and he has a, an extraordinary writing campaign to defend free will. This became one of the great controversies of, that, that Luther introduces. Luther denies free will. Well, Moore and Erasmus and, and that whole circle of humanists, how can you deny the fact that human beings are free? Uh, you're taking away responsibility. You're taking away the role of education. If we're just predestined, uh, you're presenting a source of evil as God. Uh, there are lots of implications of your view of human nature. And so this is where Moore, as, as a philosopher, as a historian, and as a poet, was extraordinarily effective in getting people to think. It took Henry VIII eight years to break with Moore. And that because of urgency. So, so when he, I'm just re-watching the movie, but so when he is named Lord Chancellor, which is the highest honor, right, below the king, it was like the number two guy, right, in, 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 in the realm, it was after um, Wolseley, right, he was the next one, it was eight years from that moment, but the pressing matter at the time was him, his divorce and trying to get that squared with the church to get the Pope to say it was okay, but that was eight years that time period lasted eight years where he was Lord Chancellor. He was actually Lord Chancellor only for two and a half, but it took four. Got it. He his approval before. And it's extraordinary that Henry would appoint him as Lord Chancellor, knowing that Moore disagreed fundamentally with what he wanted to do. Why, why did he do it? Why did he name him Lord Chancellor? Just because he was popular, popular and respected, or because he he was yes, because he Henry VIII knew Thomas More was an honest man, and he knew 
that he was concerned for the common good. He knew that he was educated and that his great concern was justice for all. But so as I, as, I, as, I, as I look at, as I look at the, tra tra the trajectory of his life, and you know, obviously he was brilliant, well-educated, admired, a great person, a family man, um, honorable, funny, witty, ironic, uh, studied, prepared, all these human wonderful characteristics as a great person knows that if he does what he needs to do and follows his conscience to do the right thing, knows that he'll die. And he knows that that, it's not only that he would lose respect, which I would assume would be something that he would cherish, but people respected him, right? As a, as a professional, as a person, as a father, as a, as a friend, that he would give all that away and die in the tower. And when I went there, London a few years ago, I was looking for some remnant and it just, you know, this little plaque under a tunnel from one place to the other. And, oh, there, Thomas Moore. It's, it's very like, yeah, he died. And I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, he died and he was so-and-so. And it, that was it. I mean, it was, there was, you know, a paragraph, a little plaque and right next to the tower and not a big deal and move on. He, he gave all that up. And now we live in a world where, you know, there's fear that drives people to, to, to not speak their conscience and to be afraid of the truth, you know, or just seems like there's, he's an, a model. Well, and that's why worldwide, after the Man for All Seasons movie came out, he became very well known and he became a symbol of integrity and courage, courage according to conscience and truth. Now, I, I think but you- But in this case, but it's, there's courage, admiration, but this is courage to death. I mean, the distinction doesn't get lost on anybody, right? So this is, okay, I, I'm courageous, but okay, up until what point? He's like, I'm, I'm going to die here. So I'm, I'm, I'm there. My life will end. My career will be done. My family. I mean, he loved his family, admittedly, that he, he loved his children. He loved his friends that to leave all that. He, he knew it was all gone, but that was cursed to death. That's why it's so important that we come to know this man, because this didn't come easy to him. He worked out on it. He trained himself. Before going into the tower, he says he scandalized that as a person of belief, he would show so much resistance inside to what he knew he had to do. But then he trained himself in the tower for a new level of courage and generosity. So he was afraid going, like he, he knew that he had to do it, but he was afraid. Absolutely, because he also was afraid for his family because it wouldn't be just him that suffered. It would be, and, it, and it's true, his whole family did suffer greatly. After, after the fact, yeah, after, so the, there was the reprisal wasn't just him, on him personally, that would be bad enough, but he knew that his family would, would take a hit as well. Correct, and he also knew on a personal level, he would lose his reputation. We have his prayer book and it has his annotations in the margin. And, any professional knows that their reputation is probably the most important thing they have. More knew that. You know, I was, when I was reading a little bit through the sadness of Christ, um, and just going through it, it seems a treasure, but it seems difficult to read. I was reading a paragraph and it was one sentence and I'm like, wait, there's, there should be, this is a long paragraph. There should be many sentences. And it was, it was, are there other alternate 
editions that are translated into easier to read English because it's it's beautifully written, but I'm like, there was 75 words in that pair sentence, and that's just, there's no period. Lots of commas. <laughs> is, the, is his writing always, I know he's got great quotes, but is his writing always like that, or? Uh, no, we, there are some good editions. In fact, uh, it took me 20 years to get editions I could use in the classroom for students because of that problem. Um, and uh, I mean, that's part of more being still unknown. In his most essential points, He's known as someone who did a great thing in terms of the, the rule of law and uh, living according to one's conscience. Uh, that people give to him. There are statues of Moore in London, uh, quite a few of them. Uh, and uh, in the year 2000, Moore was elected lawyer of the millennium. Uh, uh, he was one of, I think, six historical figures in uh, English history that had uh, a, a path through London. It was called the Pearls of London. And you could visit 20 different places that Moore was associated with, 20 different places Chaucer was associated with, 20 different places that Shakespeare. But Moore was in that category of the six most famous Londoners. Um, but controversial. <laughs> uh, and, and unfortunately, unknown. He would be much, much less controversial if people actually knew what he wrote. Because another area in which he becomes so important is how to communicate and how to get people to think deeply about those things that are emotionally upsetting. Uh, he was, along with Cicero, one of the greatest rhetoricians who have ever lived. He was the official rhetor of London and of England. When the emperor came, Henry asked him to give the address. Uh, when the king came to London, the mayor of London asked Moore to give the address. But Moore spent 20 years after law school improving his writing and his speaking. Wow. <laughs> he, translated, he translated the greatest of the past so he could have the linguistic ability to add 400 and some words to the English language. But he, but he wasn't, but he wasn't just, so in that vein, you would think that he would be this, this lofty person, but he was a person that had this capacity for friendship and he would talk to people that he disagreed with and he would have conversations with people of different opinions and he, and he was funny and ironic and witty and inaccessible. Talk he more about like, yeah. That's why that. he is a man for all seasons, and he is someone we should get to know better. And how he became that way, he decided to be a person of integrity, to be a public servant, to be a true statesman. He had to be a father of his country. He had to be a parent uh, who was considering the good of all the family. And he, this is where his first book published in English was included the 12 rules of spiritual combat <laughs> with himself. Mm -hmm. and part of that is how do you keep a cheerful attitude towards others uh, in difficult situations? His first book published in Latin uh, was a translation of a comic 
writer called Lucian. And he says he chooses that as a way of training himself in language because this comic writer could get people to think deeply without their losing their equanimity, their calm of soul. And Moore, from a, a very young age, realized that that was part of his own spiritual combat, to develop a calm of soul. And his most famous quote, you cannot abandon the ship in the storm because you can't control the winds. Uh, rather, you should not abandon the ship in the storm. That requires a captain that keeps his head uh, despite facing death. So, so you, 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 when, you look at, when you look at him as a person um, to emulate now for leaders, and I'm, and I'm fortunate and blessed to be able to work with a lot of leaders and corporations and also military leaders that face fear. They're, they're, they're fear in many circumstances. And now people of conscience fear doing the right thing and in fear of reprisal. And, um, and when I, I'd, what, what care, like how could he, how could people emulate him now in that, in, in, in the circumstances that we're in and maybe entering into a difficulty of persecution and criticism and, cancel and you can't say things and it, it seems to be that civil discourse is dead or or dying quickly um that people don't respect freedom of 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 speech that that, that those what we assumed were part of our the fabric of our society here in the united states may be gone or quickly gone how could people how leaders quickly learn from him <laughs> and and start to step up okay well he's he's a model for us encourage what, what types of things could they take from him? Commit to learn the wisdom required to do better. Um, and commit to personal combat uh, with oneself to achieve the calm of mind, the patience, the perspective needed to rule in the most difficult circumstances. Moore's first book he wrote in prison was a book on conquering fear, a book that he wrote for his children and his country because he knew what they'd face, but also a book he wrote for himself. This is where he, he committed himself every day to study and prayer at the beginning of his day. You don't have calm of spirit if you let your mind agitate and uh, and you don't you don't rule it uh, so, his, so the habit of his life was not not just in the tower presumably before that was to start his day with study and prayer every day of his of his adult life uh, he even when he, he when he uh, built his his wonderful home chelsea uh, just outside of london on the river thames he built a separate little house <laughs> that had his library in his chapel uh, so that uh, he would have a place and to go every day in order to have that thoughtful uh, perception and that habit of recollection needed to think justly and well. That sounds like great advice for the modern, the modern leader. 
Um, actually, later this morning, or, sorry, this afternoon, I'm going to be giving a small course to incoming commanders within the special operations community. And you've inspired me to talk to them about the importance of to be courageous is to, to spend that time every day in quiet, in recollection, in study, so that they can have the mind and the heart um, to, to lead, you know, to, to, to be, to be the, the leader that they, want, they, they need to be. One of the things that I just did, I'd asked you to kind of, there's so many things about him to talk about. It, it were like the three primary, well, well let's, let's call them like um, talents or virtues. And, and you had said that uh, he was wise, wise and skillful and fatherly and leading was one, that he was serene and courageous and he was diplomatic and tactful in speech. Walk us through, I know you've mentioned a little bit of these, walk us through those briefly, like they're fatherly and leading is an interesting way of describing a person. What, what does that look like for him? In his early Latin poetry, he talks about the leading citizen, a person who's chosen because that person has proved that person is interested in the good of all uh, and has the qualities to think about and to do what all need. He compares that to the father of a family who's concerned about each child. Uh, he also compares that to the, uh, the captain of a ship uh, that, again, is going to think about the good of the ship, not himself or the doctor who risks his own health in order to save the health of another. Uh, th those are the qualities of, good, of a, a good parent. Uh, and Moore saw this unity to life. Very interestingly, this went deep, deep, deep in Moore. Uh, in his first published book in English, he has a prayer where he addresses God as a very tender, loving father. And he uses that same phrase when he writes off, when he signs off to his own children in the tower. Um, you're a very tender, loving father. Drawing the comparison, right? Right. So you, then you mentioned that he was um, serenely courageous um, under really trying conditions. This is obviously his, his life got very difficult toward the end, but he maintained the serenity it would that that would come from presumably his life of prayer i mean he would he became even more prayerful or like how, how did his prayer life change in the tower or like where did that serenity and courage come from training 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 earning on and continuous early on and continuous until the last day he died his last written prayer um written between the the trial july 1st and his death july 6th was the things, good Lord, that I pray for, give me thy grace to labor for. He works until the last moment of his life to keep his good cheer. So his, his famous scaffold jokes, <laughs> look, if you help me up, I'll get myself down. <laughs> uh, his quipping with the guy who cuts off his head. Well, this is, this is charity. Um, this is a father giving good strength to all those around him. He works, he works for them. 
he worked, he worked at it. It, it. So he saw it, but he, he saw it, but he worked at it. He committed himself to it. Like you said earlier, he was, he was decisive. He made up his mind to train, to train in this. And convinced he was a wise person. And this is where he let reason rule. This is one reason why he would study the Greeks and the Romans, because they were experts also at how to keep a calm mind. You might remember the Jeremiah Denton, uh, it was the Stoics that helped him understand the techniques of keeping a calm mind. Uh, so it's both the human and the supernatural uh, that more importance is. It's why he is a Renaissance person. The Renaissance was a rebirth. Uh, Renaissance means rebirth of, of the sources, both of the best of the Roman and Greek classical world, but then also going back to the roots of the Judeo-Christian world, the Bible itself. Um, yeah. And to learn what those sources of wisdom really said and really meant, very practically, it, what kind of a person that you would forge and fashion yourself to be. That, but that's the most important work anyone has. It's to forge and fashion their own character as one of integrity up to the last moment of the battle of their life. And that's yeah. what more importance is. Incredible courage. Um, so just as we, as we wrap up, and I'm enjoying this conversation so much, and it's so great to see you again. The, the, um, this thought has crossed my mind as I, as, I, as I, there's just these scenes that I have that, you know, you know that, after after death we get to we get to meet some of the in heaven we get to meet some of the great people um that we've admired over our lives right reunited with families great saints and things like that and i've i named one of my sons after thomas more um because i admire him so much and now i've i admire him more just because of our conversation if you had the when you have the opportunity to meet him what will you say to him <laughs> in person. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What a great, well, I want to thank you. So I, I, this is, this has been a wonderful treat for me to be able to reconnect with you and, and to share this life of this wonderful man, um, St. Thomas More, something that I think we all, we can all in our days now, nowadays take, take great uh, encouragement from his life and his commitment to um, the things that were important to him. Of course, the most important things. So on that note, I want to thank you for your time and wish thank you all the you best. Too. We'll see you, again, see you again soon. Great. Wonderful. All, all the best. Take care, Jerry. Take care. For more information on me, my podcasts, books, and bio, please visit josephmccormack.com. J-O-S-E-P-H-M-C-C-O-R-M-A-C-K.com. All views shared are entirely my personal opinions and do not reflect my business concerns or coworkers' views. If you don't agree with this content, I encourage you to find a podcast that suits you better.